Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun. As we continue our run up to election time again and campaigns really kicking gear, I thought for today's rerun we could reflect back on some advice for Democrats that people were giving about a year ago in the hopes of inspiring the party to strive for something more inspirational than just saying no to Donald Trump. As for members, they got a new bonus episode in their feed today in which Amanda and I dive deep into apologies. Uh, we use some comments from Brian Stevenson and Ezra Klein that we heard on the show recently as a jumping off point, but we also look at some of the apologies and apology retractions that have been going around in the news lately. In essence, we wanted to take a look at the sometimes transactional nature of apologies and then see what it takes to go from BS obligatory apologies to genuine ones that help build a better foundation for society. So to hear all of that, and get access to all of our past and future members' episodes, and support the work that goes into this show, of course, sign up as a member at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy. We have to do this complicated thing of stopping and building at the same time, of, of saying no and proposing the yes. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Politically Reactive, The Real News, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Start Making Sense from The Nation Magazine, and Jacobin Radio. There were many crises, states of crises, that predated Trump, right? So even if every single defensive battle was won, and we know that that is not happening and that it can't happen, there will be wins, there will be losses, but even if in some amazing world every defensive victory was won, we would still be standing on the ground that where we were before we had Trump and that was the ground that produced Trump and that was not safe. Right. right. And, and that was the ground in which social movements like Black Lives Matters were surging. Yeah. Um, and, and the climate justice movement was surging because you know, we're out of time on that front. So we somehow need it to, to fight defense and offense at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, we need to end up somewhere that is different and better than where we were before Trump. It's basically like that Trump. movie, The Devil's Advocate with Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino, where it ends and you're like, yeah, he won. And then Al Pacino shows up with the devil again. Here I am. Let's start it all over again. <laughs> and am I, I the know, one who watches that are... movie every time it's on TBS? Just me? <laughs> I was like, uh, Google, Google that movie right now. <laughs> I think I may have seen the movie. <laughs> but um, just the idea of the movie is that it's like his, this battle with the devil. And at the end, Keanu Reeves is very like, I won. Whoa. And then the devil shows up at the very end of the movie, implying like, we're going to do this all again. So I'm saying that like, right. if we, to sort of support what you're saying, if we defeat Trump at every turn, we still have the south side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago. We still have the Bronx. We still have all these neighborhoods. We still, we still have Appalachia. We still have uh, poverty in the south. There's all these things that, like you said, produced him. So it would just be the next reality show TV game show host to be president. Or worse, right? Because, I, I mean, as bad as Trump is, I do believe there's worse than Trump. Um, and 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 this is why it's, I think it's particularly worrying. And you know, one of the I think one of the threads that created Trump is is this idea that billionaires are going to save us, right? That mm. we can outsource the world's problems to benevolent billionaires who um, who, because they made a whole lot of money in one area, 
uh, you know, are, are some sort of magical creatures who automatically know how to fix everything. Like right. take Bill Gates, you know, he seemed, knew a lot about creating a quasi software monopoly. I will give him that, you know, um, but why he should have the power he has over the U.S. school system, um, because he has thrown so much money as a philanthropist at, at U.S. school system. I mean, he's completely changed education in this country. He is a massive influence in healthcare, uh, internationally. He's more powerful than the, the world health organization and that is treated as you know that's the benevolent billionaire mm. mythology and 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 you know i think that the bestowing on billionaires whether it is richard branson's going to solve climate change along with michael bloomberg yeah. you know and bill gates is going to take education and hunger in africa <laughs> and bono's going to somehow help with all of it you know um, bono like will this, write a song I'll, to unite them all <laughs> um that that this created the ground for Donald for Donald Trump. It was it is part of one of the roads that lead to Trump. It's not the only one, but it, but it's an important one because that allowed it to somehow be a credible pitch to the American people of like my only qualification for this job is I'm really rich. Yeah, rich right? white savior. Exactly, and yeah. and and so that idea comes from somewhere, and you know Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are not spectators in this. I mean, the Clinton Foundation um, was ground zero for this idea of um, there is no problem that cannot be solved by bringing the right benevolent millionaire together with the right policymakers blessed by A-list celebrities. I mean, that is what the Clinton, um, the, 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 um, the, the Davos on the Hudson, as it was called, as their yeah. annual uh, uh, Clinton Global Initiative was called, uh, gathering. And um, and so the reason why I raise this is because I actually hear people saying, well, maybe Oprah should run or we should get Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> or, you know, maybe Elon Musk can save us. And I just think maybe not. Like maybe we should we should stop looking <laughs> to this. We should stop treating politicians like celebrities like that is not helping. But is that feasible? Like I think with the election coming in 2020, like I, I sort of feel like I kind of understand and I know that I kind of understand that you people... think Elon's going to save us, don't you? No, 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 no. I got to I'm going a different <laughs> way. It, I, I'm sort of sort of lightly investigating uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson 2020. I'm lightly, lightly <laughs> investigating it just because I feel like I get the need to go. We need a better face on our side like just to get us through the next lane and then we'll go back to grassroots is what i'm saying i sort of understand why the left would be like maybe we need to get you know it's like it's like every superhero movie we need a hero to match this villain you know I, i'm not I selling you on dwayne the rock johnson 2020 <laughs> um and you know, there are some amazing <laughs> pro wrestlers out there who I've met on Twitter. Um, and I mean, there's, there's I'm not no saying I believe that, that it's that, that he will say, it, but I sort of get why people would go, okay, well, if this is the game, like I, I get why people who sort of think of this now as like, it is become professional wrestling. Trump was actually did stuff in the WWE. Maybe mm -hmm. if we're not hall of fame. Yeah. He's in the hall of fame. <laughs> so yeah. if we're going to like, if here's a question, if it's like Joe Biden 2020 or Dwayne The Rock Johnson 2020. Yeah. OK. If those are the choices, on the <laughs> table, <laughs> I think you may very well be right. OK. But I but, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping we don't go this route. Like, you know, I was on Morning Show the other the other day. We are very weirdly. Um, <laughs> so weirdly. Right. Um, but 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 they were saying. 
Well, what about this Macron guy in France, right? Who is like, he, he just won an election and maybe we need to find our own Macron. And I just said, like, his name's Barack Obama. Like, you did, that did happen in, in this country. And, 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 you know, there are many forces that produce Trump, but I think one of them is the failure of neoliberal economics to tangibly improve lives for a lot of people. And a lot of people checked out on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm I, I'm interested in what just happened in the UK, where you know this really anti-politician Jeremy Corbyn did way better than anybody expected. I mean, like as far from the rock as you could get <laughs> as a politician. You're not going to you know. get me off the rock, Naomi. I'm going <laughs> to. I look look if 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 the choices are the rock and Joe Biden, I'm 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 with you. I'm with you. But I think there I think there the may choices be- might be that which is very frightening. <laughs> Um, but what was interesting about what just happened in the, in the UK is it was almost like the, the what mattered about, uh, about Jeremy Corbyn is that he's honest. Um, he didn't seem to be trying to sell people a bill of goods. And he came up with a platform that were like, you're going to have free college tuition um, and debt forgiveness for students and well-funded public health care and fewer wars and – People liked those ideas and they thought he was a credible messenger for those ideas. So, you know, I mean, I don't know whether this shift can happen in time for the next electoral cycle in this country, but I, I really do think that, you know, Trump should be seen as a warning. You know, he, he, it's this mirror that's being held up to our culture and it's like this all roads lead here. Mm. And, and I think what we should be doing is swerving in the face of that mirror and trying some other ideas instead of just doubling down and trying to out Trump Trump at his own game because it's really it's actually really hard to out Trump Trump at his own game he's very good at branding hmm. I mean you talk about hollow brands uh, in your previous books and you know that's what Trump is isn't he like he's a hollow brand he's he there there is no substance it's all built about his name and his name uh, you know carrying the weight like this is what success looks like it's Trump when you think money you think Trump when you think the boss you think Trump um, is that why it's, it seems impossible to pin him down? It's impossible. No scandal seems to to knock him off course because, well, you do what you have to do in your Trump. Well, he is he is he's, he has entered politics playing by a completely different set of rules. He is not playing by the rules of politics. He's playing by the rules of branding. His right. brand has swallowed the U.S. government. He's the first fully commercialized brand to become president, and. Um, and, and, and this is not anything we've seen before. Yes, there have been presidents with business conflicts of interest. That is not the same as what Trump has done by, by turning the White House into an extension of the Trump brand. And the thing to understand about what companies like the Trump organization are doing is they're not traditional. They're not, they're not traditional companies. They're not selling a product. They're not, you know, his business is not building buildings. His business is selling an idea. Right. Mm. So, you know, for Nike, the idea that they sell is transcendence through sports. You know, Apple sells revolution or they used to sell revolution. Starbucks sells community. Trump sells impunity. Mm. Right. He sells impunity through wealth. That is the promise. If you're rich enough, if you, if I can help you be like me, that's the promise of The Apprentice. It's the promise of every book he's ever quote unquote written. It's the promise of Trump University. I will make you like me. Quote unquote university. Sorry, you have to put air quotes around (laughs) all of these things. 
but this is what he's been selling now for, for, for three decades. And it's a, it's an increasingly seductive sales pitch. The, the more unequal the society becomes, you know, the, 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 you know, the opening shot of The Apprentice is a guy sleeping rough on the streets of New York, and then it pans over to Trump in the limousine, right? Who do you want to be? The guy sleeping on the street, or do you want to be Trump, right? Like, oh, my this God. Is, I've never seen the, the I just I've never seen The Apprentice. I was like, I didn't know that. <laughs> wow. It's really insidious. And I did, you know, I had only seen a few episodes, you know, or not even whole episodes. Mm-hmm. Before, but ha- I, favorite guilt watching TV, favorite show. <laughs> um, and it, but it was enlightening because this was televised class warfare. I hadn't yeah. really focused on yeah. that before, you know, turning uh, mass layoffs into mass entertainment. I mean, you've got to hand it to him uh, for, 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 for doing that. I mean, this is the whole genre of reality TV is sort of um, – you know, it's kind of capitalist burlesque, right? right? Like you've got a group of people who you you train to turn on each other for a pot of gold at the end. But before The Apprentice, there was some pretext that they were doing something else, like competing on an island. It was, there was something <laughs> else going on. But then yeah. Trump was just like, no, this is about capitalism. And I'm yeah. the ultimate capitalist, right? I can only imagine what you think of Undercover Boss. Um, the, uh, well, I'll come back to that. Okay? But just to <laughs> Next time you're question, on, right? we'll, we'll go through all the, the capitalistic problem- reality shows, Shark Tank. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Let's do that. But so, the, so the problem is, you know, if he had a brand with morals and he was playing by the rules of branding, right? Um, then, there, then it would be easier to hold him accountable. But because he designed a brand that is all about what you can get away with if you're rich enough, you right. think about what he said on that Access Hollywood tape. You can grab him, you know, yeah, if yeah. you're rich enough. If you're, if you, you know, if you're a celebrity, you can get away with it, right? Um, so that's what he's been selling. And so everything he gets away with, every, every scandal, um, that he gets away with in office is reinforcing his brand. It doesn't make his base turn on him. It makes them identify with this aspiration of the all powerful boss. Right. And you, so you're saying that like his brand was being a piece of shit. Be a piece of shit to get you where you want to go. So why are we surprised he's being shitty? Everyone's like, yeah. Be careful, yeah, Harry. Right. I got a guy I know fired from CNN saying, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, yeah, I mean that moment on the campaign trail where he said I, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, right? He yeah. he knows exactly what's going on. But there are ways to hurt his brand. That's why he gets so upset by you know the President Bannon memes and the you know the, the you know if you if if people start saying he's not the boss, that gets his attention, right? Right. Um, but being a mean boss or a bad boss or you know a lying boss, that you could care less about that. Wanna have friends that I can trust that love me for the man I've become, not the man that I was. And I wanna have friends that let me be all alone when being alone is all that I need. What does a progressive resistance to Trump look like? Oh, man. I mean, I'm saying this as a... To, to be clear, I, I, I am a journalist. Uh, I am a journalist who, you know, who covers these issues. So I'm not playing political strategist here. Um, my view is that a, a progressive resistance to Trump is one that you would think by its very terms would mean a resistance to the policies of Trump. 
not just to trump the human being. Uh, I think right now what you've seen is a sort of policy-free resistance to Trump, a, a political resistance to Trump based on uh, based more on enmity against Trump as a person than necessarily Trump as a vehicle for policy. So I think right now, and I think frankly that that kind of resistance is safer for democratic politicians, that it's easier to politically oppose Trump on issues like the Russia situation, uh, on allegations of foreign influence, uh, even potentially on uh, allegations of conflicts of interest with his business. And to be clear, I'm not saying any of those issues are not issues. They are legitimate issues. But it is easier to make those kinds of issues central to a resistance than making, for instance, his particular policies on infrastructure, his particular policies on healthcare, his particular policies on fossil fuel development, the centerpiece of a resistance, because a resistance based on resistance to those kinds of policies potentially antagonizes big donors and big money. The big donors and big money are not threatened by a resistance to Donald Trump that is predicated on allegations about Russia, that are predicated on uh, allegations of incompetence and mismanagement. I mean, and to be clear, in the Russia case, I mean, yes, you could argue there's some money issues working at work there with the oil interests and the like. But in general, you are that is that is a fundamentally different form of opposition and resistance than saying we are going to fight Donald Trump's health care plans and propose an alternative. Because by proposing an alternative, you are potentially alienating a huge amount in that case of health care money. So I think the long term shortcoming of a resistance that's based primarily on a political resistance rather than a policy resistance is if Trump is disempowered or impeached or thrown out, that process hasn't birthed necessarily a mandate for or momentum for a new set of long-term policies. And so, um, so is it also going to be important to wage resistance to the, the moneyed interest, the oligarchy, like Sanders said, within the Democratic Party as well? if people are going to fight for something rather than just resist Trump? Well, I mean, you, you've got to ask the question, why hasn't there been more of a forceful, coherent uh, policy resistance to Trump? And I think it's because the Democratic Party is constantly caught between knowing what it should, should do to win elections, which is propose a positive policy vision on issues that are popular. They're caught between that and their donor class. And so there's this constant search by democratic operatives and pundits and politicians to try to find on the Venn diagram some middle ground. Where can we satisfy the public and also appease our donors? And that crossover in the Venn diagram is getting narrower and narrower because what the public wants is becoming in direct opposition to what the donor class wants. So it's a very, it's becoming a narrower and narrower uh, area, if that is your formula, for Democrats to operate. And I think what Bernie Sanders represents, 
threatens that formula because what it says is you can run winning campaigns or at least almost winning campaigns and certainly certainly he didn't lose for lack of resources you can you can run competitive campaigns with a completely different paradigm where you don't have to answer to a donor class and which frees you to run on issues that are wildly popular with the public i mean i said on something on twitter recently i was kind of joking but it was like you know, if you want to understand democratic politics and the problem with it right now in terms of the, its political successes, if you take the idea that healthcare should be a basic human right and you blast it through a windscreen of corporate donor money, on the other side, what you get is a policy that says we should subsidize private insurance executives' uh, salaries. That That the policy impulse may be right, but when you're filtering it through we need to appease our donors on the other side comes a policy that doesn't necessarily solve the problem isn't politically popular and essentially leaves everything the same it's a status quo policy and so on that issue um Would you agree that that is what the Democratic establishment wants? They want to maintain the status quo. And so we sort of saw that um, with the fact that uh, Jarrett Messina, as you've written about, he went to go lobby, uh, went to go work with the conservatives, um, the Tories in England against a progressive socialist challenger with a vision that was starkly different than what his own party had done in the past, support foreign wars, erode the, the social state. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I mean, Jim Messina ran uh, Barack Obama's campaign. I don't know if you, you you can't attribute what one person decides to do to to the whole party. But I think it it is emblematic of the idea of one idea that that on economic issues and the British election was a lot about economics. That on economic issues the corporate wing of the Democratic Party is not that far away from, for instance, the conservatives in, in Britain. And and I think that example confirms some people's fears and suspicions that the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, if forced to choose, would choose the Democratic Party losing to a Republican rather than winning with, uh, winning with a socialist or somebody who is a true progressive. I think that that it's not and we're talking in general terms here but I think for instance now when we talk about the Democratic Party I'm not even necessarily saying we're talking about the Democratic rank and file electorate. I'm saying if you look at the cadre of insiders who runs the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is run by operatives, it's run by activists, it's run by lobbyists, it's run by donors. If you look at the, that core of the the machine that we know that we call the democratic party that there is not an insubstantial number of people in that machine who if forced to choose would would probably be more comfortable with in opposition to a republican president than having to support a democratic party's very progressive or socialist presidential candidate
Bill Curry, let's get to the nub of the problem. This is the worst Republican Party, arguably, in history. I think Senator Robert Taft, Mr. Conservative in the 1950s, would have been appalled. Dwight Eisenhower, president, would have been appalled. Teddy Roosevelt wouldn't have recognized the party. This is a party that openly wants to toxify the environment more by dropping law and order regulations. They're against labor, workers, low-income people. They have anti-children proposals. They want to cut everything dealing with the necessities of the American people and give big tax breaks and other immunities and privileges to corporations and take the federal cop off the corporate crime beat. They're militaristic in foreign policy. It's never enough for the military budget in the Pentagon, even exceeding what the generals want. So why can't the Democratic Party defeat and landslide in recent decades the Republican Party, and instead it's losing out to the Republican Party, most recently two open seats for the House of Representatives in Kansas and Montana? Okay, it's an answer that's so long, I'm only going to give you a little bit of it. You know, there are technical issues and structural issues and strategic issues that people debate in the media all the time. The Democratic Party very famously under the uh, aegis of Rahm Emanuel when he was at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee pursued a a policy of hyper-targeting races, only spending money in the most competitive races, and also of tailoring every message to each district, trying to find candidates who they thought matched the district but mostly doing so by avoiding big national issues. It was a part of the party losing its identity. People remember that between Rahm Emanuel and Howard Dean, who took over as a national chair after 2004, there was a great debate over whether to have a 50-state strategy to bring the party to every community or to continue to do it as Rahm did it. And so they can fix all those things. All those things need to be, they need a 50-state strategy. They need to be in every precinct in America. The first thing to to, to note about the Democrats is that still in thrall to the Rahm Emanuel approach, they ignored the Kansas race, which the Republican eventually won with only 52% of the vote, the Democrat having been abandoned by his national party in their very first post-Trump race. They've done very poorly all the way back to Emanuel, including now in terms of candidate recruitment, in terms of the quality of the candidates. But most importantly, I just want to say that the center of this is what Democrats call message, but which is really policy. And in their search for the perfect message, Democrats ignore policy, even progressive Democrats to some significant degree. Spell that out. Spell that out. Well, it works on a lot of levels. First of all, the Democratic Party has colonized much of the institutional left, the labor movement, most of the Washington-based environmental and various other social change movements. You know, in the old days, in the last glory days of progressivism in America in the late 1960s, the great environmental movement, the consumer movement, as you well know, the civil rights, peace, women's movements, were all independent grassroots movements. And then in the beginning of the 1980s, they all formed PACs. They all got into electoral politics. They were all intimidated by the Reagan ascendancy. And in the coming years, they basically traded the politics of pressure for the politics of access, which works very well for the progressive uh, movement leaders, but not very well at all for the progressive movements or the issues which they champion. And slowly, what has happened over time is as the Democratic Party has, in effect, colonized the left, 
it has become the first progressive movement which for a whole generation has no bottom line. There are no deal breakers. That, you mean that, like uh, if, if you don't support if, universal if health for, insurance? I, but in, yeah. in the 1980s, I was honored to be the political director of the nuclear freeze movement. And we had a very simple equation. We were for not world peace, but a very specific blueprint, a mutual, verifiable freeze on the research, development, production, and deployment of nuclear weapons. All With the them. Soviet Union. And it had to be bilateral. That's right. It had to be, bi- excuse me, it had to be bilateral, verifiable, and it had to extend to all phases of development and deployment. And if you were for it, we were for you, regardless of party. And if you weren't for it, we weren't for you, regardless of party. And that's how all progressive movements at that time worked. And it was better for them and the Democrats because it's been the role of progressive movements to give the Democratic Party its spine and its vision. The Democratic Party has been the vessel through which the progressive movements from the agrarian populists to the progressives of the turn of the century to the New Deal up into the Great Society and the 60s social change movements Those were the great engines of social progress in America. Those were the architects of our prosperity and of a society which is more just and more inclusive. So when did the... the, They made the Democratic Party better by by keeping it at arm's length, by not becoming so close to it. They actually helped it more. What's the nature of the rot? What's the nature of the rot here? Is it money from Wall Street? Is it that our side doesn't put down conditions the way you did for the nuclear freeze movement? The AFL-CIO endorses the Democratic candidates with no conditions about living wage or full health insurance. Where is the rot coming from that has basically given this party the ultimatum power to the American people where else do you have to go? You've got to vote for us. The Republicans are worse. Where did well, the rock say, come from? Let me say, first of all, it comes from money. But before I talk about that, I just want to say that, you know, what's happened here is that the leaders of these progressive movements, these Washington-based progressive movements that were once independent movements and are now just Washington lobbies with grassroots mailing lists, the leaders of these movements are like just so much adjunct faculty to the Democratic Party. And their relationship, they see their career paths through the party. Their most fundamental alliances are with the party. And again, as I said, that's hurt everyone. It's not that they've all been corrupted by money. The party's been corrupted by money. And it has adopted a set of views that are convenient to its corruption. One of which is that it believes not in winning elections by developing bold policy blueprints, but in winning elections by clever messaging, by micro-targeting. When I was with the Freeze and, and, and you with the consumer movement, no great progressive movement in American history ever had a separate message for every state or every demographic. There was no narrow casting. It is the, it in the very essence of progressive social change that you put a big, broad idea on the table. And if you believe in the idea and if it's a credible idea that speaks to a problem people care about, it will do your organizing and your fundraising for you. We stopped believing in the power of ideas and we forgot that policy precedes message, that you first have to figure out what you believe and then how to tell people about it. And so the progressives became like the Democrats, using the same consultants and peddling the same ads and pursuing the same strategies. By the way, on the other side, 
the Republicans, at least the Republicans, I'll say this for them, they invested in think tanks. When we were investing in celebrity pollsters and consultants, the Republicans were building Cato, Heritage, Hoover, American Enterprise. They sank a fortune into policy development, bad policy development, but policy development. And while the Democrats were sinking all of their fortune, the smaller fortune, into their cult consultants and pollsters, who, by the way, actually made most of their living as corporate pollsters and consultants, doing the Democratic candidates on the side, which was itself, would itself in any other profession be a conflict of interest. And the result has been a, a national political debate that's like a fight to the death between Ayn Rand and Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> The Republicans are actually running an analysis, and we're running, you know, the medium is the message. Okay, I know our, it, list, our listeners are now thinking, okay, Bill Curry, what about the Bernie Sanders movement? What about third parties to hold the Democratic Party's feet to the fire? Can you run through those quickly? Yeah, I'll just say this. I don't believe that we've done this right. I think the left has been too quick to simply engage in protest parties every two or four years, protest candidacies. I really believe that it demonstrates in part our, an American reluctance to vie for power in politics. And I really do believe that the lesson for us is clear from what the Tea Party did. The second major party, now the first party in America, the Republican Party, is a proto-fascist party. In six short years, beginning in 2009, it was taken over by a loose conglomeration of groups uh, we call the Tea Party. They've taken everything, the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the White House, most legislatures, most governors, while the Democratic Party has reached absolute nadir, become just a shadow of what it once was. And I believe we have to look at that strategy, not emulate their tone, not match their extremism, but we have to go after the Democratic Party from the inside. We have to fight it. People talk about whether it will reform or not, and I think that confuses progressives. The question isn't whether the present leadership of the Democratic Party will ever be reformed. It won't be. The question is whether it can be replaced, and if so, how. And as I've said before in this show, nothing gets the herd's attention like a good culling. If progressives were to concentrate on primaries against some of the worst Democrats, most tied to Wall Street, who are the worst obstructionists, even winning a few of those would change how all of them thought. What about Bernie Sanders' movement? Well, Bernie, I, think that the, I think the Sanders movement, let me just say, there's a lot of problems that I see in terms of how they're doing. I mean, Bernie's doing well in getting out there and, and representing his, his views. In 2009, Barack Obama had built the largest grassroots electoral political movement in American history. And the first thing he did when he got in office was to take it private to put it under the control of his donors and a couple of technicians, and actually, quite literally, it was housed in the DNC. And DNC, Democratic the, National The Democratic Committee. National Committee, which effectively just shook the life right out of it. It, it died of neglect. And, now, uh, Bernie, it, Bernie, let's go to Bernie. And That's Bernie's movement, and, and the problem is that Bernie's, Bernie's doing better than that, but he still hasn't done what you would think a democratic socialist would do. A democratic socialist, you would think, would want to turn the factory over to the workers and would want to make a more democratic movement. It should be the antithesis of everything that the Democratic Party National Committee is. It should be open and democratic and controlled by grassroots members. And so far, 
I'm not seeing that. I think they're wrestling with these issues. I, I'm hopeful that they'll continue to do so. But what we need is to create an alternative to the Washington-based movements I described before. I love what the Working Families Party is doing. They primary some Democrats. They endorse some Democrats. They run some independent candidates. They try to make sure that their strategy serves their issue. I think that's a much smarter approach than the one that the Greens have traditionally taken. I don't mean to insult any of my friends in the Green Party. Final question, Bill Curry. A majority of the people, and it keeps increasing in recent polls, want single-payer, full Medicare for all, everybody in, nobody out, free choice of doctor and hospital. It comes in, as you know, much more efficient in terms of cost and it has better outcomes. That's the experience in Canada, our neighbor to the north. Now, the five Democratic representatives to the House of Representatives have refused to sign on H.R. 676, sponsored by Congressman John Conyers from Michigan, which is a single-payer, full Medicare for all bill. 113 Democrats have signed on, but none of the five Democratic representatives from the state of Connecticut, where you live and work, and where you were elected years ago state controller. What do you make of that? Why? Well, I make of it that this is the insurance state still and that people are timid about upsetting that and and are worried about the effect on the short-term effect on jobs within their own industry. It's not a, a view I subscribe to. I would also point out, though, that you know Nancy Pelosi hasn't endorsed it, and the House leadership still speaks disparagingly of it. They finally introduced a public option bill. A really strong public option could be the foundation of a single-payer system, which is why I've always felt so strongly about it. When we lost the public option, Obama himself was secretly against it. Our party won't even go that far. And so we have to, in every one of these situations, both here in Connecticut and across the uh, country, we have to be willing to put pressure on the Democrats themselves. We have to be willing to have this debate. Our party, the party leaders are saying, don't have a debate. It's no time to be squabbling. We have to fight this common enemy. But in fact, it's our failure to have a debate that got us here. And it's our failure to have a little bit of a civil war that got us here. That's how parties renew themselves. This party is just a patient that lay etherized upon that table. It's dying right before our eyes, even in this hour of our greatest peril. And the reason is that our own progressive group has to bring that insurrection. And for some reason, for the reasons we talked about, hasn't. And because the party itself needs to free itself from its donors and have a real debate, the kind of debate that brings you to European healthcare system that brings you to, to an end of systematic public corruption that takes on new trade policies and, and that deals with climate change, all the issues we care about. Every other country in the developed world is moving ahead of us on all of them. America is turning into a public policy disaster area. Making and, America worse and, again. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and that's what we have to do. The change begins, I think, within the progressive community, and I think it involves the challenge from the progressive community to the reigning Democrats. There you are, listeners. There's the scene in raw reality from Bill Curry. We know what has to be done. The August recess brings these senators and representatives back home. Make sure you fill those seats in those town meetings, and if they don't have town meetings, start your own town meetings. 
things could be stranger, but I don't know how. I'm going through changes now. Could spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. I'm going through changes now that have just begun. Under a purple sun, there's many reasons we are what we've become. I'm going through changes, ripping out pages. I'm going through changes now. You say in your book that every time we say the word Trump, even when we're saying it in a negative light, as we are right now, we're doing his marketing for him. That is depressing. It is depressing. And, and in retrospect, I wish I had just sort of substituted the word Trump throughout the book for something else. <laughs> but but, it, but it, we are, because part of the Trump show involves the people attacking Trump, right? I mean, this is, he uses the formula of another fake reality entertainment genre, professional wrestling. And professional wrestling needs villains, um, needs people who the crowd turns on and boos. And that's us, you know, <laughs> what we're doing right now. The doubters, the haters, <laughs> the, the people who, who, who insist that there is something called reality. Um, and, and so we, we are in, in, the, in the show. And we need to find a way to change the channel. We need to find a way to turn it off. And, and you know, one of the things that worries me is some idea that the way to beat Trump is to come up with a better brand that, you know, a bigger cele billionaire celebrity to do battle with him on, on his own turf. And, and I actually think the only thing that can pierce this is a political project that is offering people such tangible and meaningful improvements to their daily life not a show about bringing back the jobs, but actually a 21st century jobs plan that is about meeting the crisis of climate change and, 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 and making sure that the jobs created are unionized jobs uh, that pay a middle-class wage, which unfortunately has not been enough of the green jobs discourse, right? And, 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 and fighting for single-payer universal health care and, uh, and, 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 getting rid of tuition fees. This is the platform Jeremy Corbyn ran on. And it was really interesting how when he issued his manifesto, that changed everything in the campaign. I mean, he was so behind in the polls. And it wasn't that he suddenly became a charismatic politician and an amazing brand. It was that he put forward ideas that captured the imagination of a large part of the country, particularly young people, who felt that he was a, tr a, a guy they could trust because he's not a brand or a celebrity. I mean, it was his reality that his, his, his unfocused grouped, unpolished, unslick reality that made young people and ma still makes young people and so many vulnerable people trust him in the face of so many hyper-produced mm -hmm. <laughs> politicians that in combination with the ideas and policies themselves. So I think we, you know, we are at this moment in, you know, looking at what's, what's the strategy going to be going forward. And, and there's still such a powerful hope within, uh, you know, the top echelons of the Democratic Party that it is just a question of finding, you know, Hillary without the baggage. To uh, change registers here, one of the 
most surprising things to me in your book, No, Is Not Enough, is your section titled, Killing the Trump Within. What is that about? You know, I, I was struck in, the, in, the, in, in my conversations with, with, with a fair number of liberals about, let's just say, the sort of Clinton Democrats, that there was this deep desire to sort of present Trump and his basis just completely other. Um, that there's this narrative that there's like, there's two Americas, there's the good guys and the bad guys, right? And it's that bad America that produced Trump. But the li liberals are entirely innocent. So that's, you know, part of the reason why I, I wanted to talk about philanthropic capitalism and how the Clinton Global Initiative created the context for Trump. But, you know, I also think it's a more internal examination that's required about how the whole, um, like logic of personal branding, it's is Trump is the first human fully commercialized brand to be the US president. Like that's a big deal. This is not just about conflicts of interest. This is an entirely new ball game where the, 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 the word Trump, the person of Trump is entirely inseparable from this global commercial enterprise, which is why whenever we say his name, we're feeding his brand. This is a new business model. And there's never been you know, a, a, a precedent for this. But this whole phenomenon of personal branding is an, is new. You know, when I wrote No Logo 17 years ago, I think I ended it going, and you know, there's some people who even think that people can be brands, you know, <laughs> it was like, that was a new idea. And, um, and now, you know, we have a, we're all running our own little reality TV show from our social media feeds, you know, curating our own life for external cons consumption. Our organizations use all the tools of corporate branding to take ownership over campaigns and promote and fundraise. And I think particularly in this moment, all of that needs to be interrogated because the thing about the logic of branding is that it's, it's the antithesis of, a, of, of the logic of building a broad social movement because brands are possessive and brands are competitive where social movements are expansive and they open their arms and they want everybody. And so, so that's why I put that section in. And, and, and also just because I really do believe Trump is dystopian fiction come to life. And so all of these things that scare us about Trump, the fact that he has no attention span, that he doesn't read, you know, that he functions at this hyperactive speed that makes everybody frantic around him. I mean, that's a reflection of the direction our culture is going in. So this is why we are at this moment where it's like, do we try to compete with Trump on this sick terrain or do we try to get to a different place? Your book um, includes a call for utopian thinking, and I want to try out my utopia on you. We stop every Trump initiative. No Trump care, no tax cuts for the rich. What do you think of that as a utopia? <laughs> um, I think it's not ambitious enough <laughs> because, you know, that best case scenario, we stop every one of Trump's initiatives we end up exactly where we were before Trump arrived. And that is the ground that produced Trump. So we can't just be negative and reactive. We have to stop them. But we have to 
we have to do this complicated thing of, of stopping and building at the same time of, of, of saying no and proposing the yes, right? That jujitsu. And, and, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of what's happening in California with single payer. It is the no to Trump care and the yes of single payer in sharp contrast to it. And, and that's what we need to be, that's what we need to be doing at every front. But more importantly, we need to be connecting the dots between all of these so that they're, they're, they're not just about issues, but about a shift in values in who we are. We are not this people that is about just becoming part of that small clique of winners in the golden tower in the sky, stepping on everybody along the way. just steer you over to the Democrats. You're going there. Sure. Your yep. segment. I'm all, yes. There's nothing I'd rather talk about than the <laughs> Well, Democratic okay. Party. I mean, be, is, what we're seeing I mean, is I, they're a party bent on, on destruction, it looks like, and and doubling down on defeat. And you see Nancy Pelosi as, as she answers the calls to get rid of her leadership that, in fact, she says the level of attacks against her show how strong she is and effective she is. So given all of that, what do you think their strategy is? And maybe you could tell us why they lost these well, elections. Well, I think the issue is very simple. The Clinton and Obama supporters want to stop people who think like Bernie Sanders at almost any cost. You could see that in the race for chair of the Democratic National Committee, for Mm -hmm. example, and it has shown up repeatedly in the decisions about which candidates to support in these congressional elections that they have uniformly lost. So that's the key issue. And beyond that is the question of what's behind that is the issue of what the party stands for. And to a considerable extent, the rhetoric about resist has been, I think, quite deliberately employed to stop people from asking, well, we know what we're against. We know we're against Trump, against attacks on immigrants, on race baiting, attacks on women. We, you know, we all know that. That's pretty plain. But what are we for? Right. In particular... The remarkable, stunning thing is, in this discussion of health care, the way the Democratic leadership has run from single-payer. And single-payer is very plainly the answer to the economic problems posed by medical spending. So, right. This is the groundswell. This is what people want. And what was remarkable, Tom Ferguson, in the Georgia race was the way Ossoff just didn't talk about Trump care or... Well, Ossoff was clearly a candidate to the liking of the Democratic national leadership, which is why they were willing to pile so much money in. Mm. Those other races, they weren't necessarily uh, so favorably inclined. Mm. And, you know, these other races, uh, several of them could possibly have been won with a bit more national effort. But Like in my home anybody, state of Montana with Rob Quist. Yep, there was one, there was Kansas. Kansas. I'm sorry, thank you. And Bernie Sanders was the only person, I think, who went out there a significant national stature to campaign. And the guy didn't get the support from the Democratic National Committee, and everybody was pretty bitter about it afterward, and they barely lost. And this is going to continue. It's not going away. The Democratic national leadership is in the hands of Wall Street insurers, a lot of folks in the medical industrial complex that don't want single-payer. It's the traditional sort of 
if you like, corporate uh, side of the Democrats. Now, the issue before us, I think, is just very straightforward. Either these folks are going to control the party or the population is going to control it. And this is this, this is, the is question. it inside the Democratic Party. Anybody who tells you any other issue is just talking smoke quite deliberately. Well, Tom Ferguson, um, just just to go on that, because now what we're seeing, if anybody in the listening audience has a credit card, they're getting notices from their credit card companies that they're changing fee structures and interest rate structures because, you know, the Consumer Protection Agency yeah, is gutted. And now, it's not you know, gutted yet. There are proposals to gut it are legion. And there you'll find, I think, some Democrats, notably Elizabeth Warren, will stand up. Warren's also belatedly, but look, it's an amazingly gutsy thing to do. No point. She has now said, look, single payer is clearly the way to go. She's a little slow to jump on the telecom issues because of the efforts, the way the Trump administration has handed the FCC over to issues on network neutrality. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this is actually an important issue that Democrats need to get on because the people who really get hammered on these efforts to wipe out network neutrality, in other words, treating everybody as an equal sort of source to get on the Internet, no two-speed Internets, are rural America because those folks get... Trump really, supporters. They, they often have no competition whatever in their uh, districts. And this, this is a really big deal. It's not a minor issue. The telecom, finance, medical stuff. And the Democrats, mainline Democrats, have been wishy-washy, but generally better than the Republicans on network neutrality. They've been much wishier and washier on finance. Well, let's go to that, to Dodd-Frank, I think goes into your first thing about Trump, and he uh, was opposed to the TPP and trade, and he also said that he was in favor of restoring Glass-Steagall, but that's not what the reforms... That's not where they're going. So maybe you could just say a little bit, because also with respect, not the Republicans, but the Democrats, what is their position on Dodd-Frank, and in particular the Volcker rule? I think they're trying to figure out what they think. Elizabeth Warren has been quite vocal. The party itself hasn't had that much to say. Let me, if I could, back up to mm-hmm. it. This is a very tricky issue to judge. That is to say, the strength of the various factions in the Democratic Party. Because the issue is this. I think the Sanders campaign proved that you can actually raise enough money to be nationally competitive. If Sanders had started earlier, if he like declared running when Baltimore was burning and things like that, he might actually have won the nomination because it would have been easier to bridge the gap between him and, and African American voters. That it took a long time for that to sort of happen. But what that means is the following that the national party apparatus is typically going to be in the hands of the big money folks. That's exactly what's happened in in the last few months. But once you get candidates named and people start to compete, then you'll see money and volunteers and stuff can matter. I, I don't actually think, though this conflict appears to be mostly dormant right now, you can see it if you look closely, it will come back to life in the 2018 races paying attention to how many subsidized Democrats there are is a really important question. The other thing that one wants to look at are all these new media companies that use the Internet. They mm. often, when you study them, turn out to be owned by hedge funds. 
and other operations that clearly have access to grind. Can I just interrupt because here's an issue that the Democrats have not come out against getting rid of the special privilege for hedge fund managers, which has carried interest. And then on the other hand, what you're saying is showing how the traditional forms of financing elections can be upended by very massive mobilization, as we've seen with Sanders. So, But on the other hand, I guess on the third hand, the Sanders forces are caught between a rock and a hard place because they're inside the Democratic Party where the leadership hates them and opposes them, and they don't have a lot of choices. So maybe you can kind of speak about well, all of these Well, okay, issues. I still think that the institutional barriers to third parties, which are erected by the two major parties, no doubt about this, and colluded on with big media in the sense that they simply will not cover third parties. You know, you're, you're long past any doctrine of fairness, and even when you had the fairness doctrine, they just wouldn't cover they didn't cover anything except the major parties anyway that's probably not going to change so i actually think if you're asking me as a clinical i don't like it but if you're asking me for a clinical judgment probably the best route is still dumping out candidates and primaries in the democratic party you can get on the ballot much more easily than if you try to get on as a third party you'll spend all of your time and money just trying to get on and in that sense i fear that for at least for the foreseeable future, absent some court decision that would change things, which I don't see that happening. I think two things. I think it's clear from 2016 that enough money can be raised to get candidates going, at least in a fair number of cases. The other thing that I think is incredibly clear is that very large number of Americans now see that our form of American capitalism no longer works for most people. It is very plainly producing enormous riches for small numbers of folks. And that the chance for ordinary people to have careers, to go to college, to get just sort of basic fairness, to hold on to blue-collar jobs with unions, that stuff is all rapidly withering. And people see it. I don't think you're going to be able to contain that very plausibly. I don't think you're going to be able to do, you know, Hillary Clinton did not win the election. Some statistical studies of that race have shown that the amount of time talking about policy, as distinct from candidates or something, was about the lowest in many years. (laughs) The Democratic line has been, we're not Republicans. That's not going to be good enough. Not at all. uh, I think. And um, I think these folks are vulnerable. I'm not somebody that has been walking around telling you for 20 years things are going to get better. But I actually think these folks are beatable. I think the times are running against them. Well, that's what and, I wanted to end with because we are out of time. But in any case, it, it does pose a conundrum because, as you say, the leadership has their ties in the Democratic Party, have their ties to finance, and they hate the Sanders forces. And yet the American public doesn't like them and have shown that in every single election. Nope. So nope. let's just These hear guys it. are losers now, I think. Bernie Sanders jibe that they'd prefer a a first-class cabin on the Titanic. That's exactly right.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Politically Reactive speaking with Naomi Klein about how Trump isn't just a problem, he's the result of all of the problems we've been ignoring. The Real News spoke with David Sirota about what a progressive resistance against Trump could look like. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour talked with Bill Curry about how the Democratic Party lost its way and how they could be found again. Start Making Sense also spoke with Naomi Klein, like about a dozen other shows I've heard recently, about her book, No Is Not Enough. And finally, we just heard Jackman Radio interviewing Tom Ferguson about a strategy for progressives to take back power. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Wow. Boom, Jay. Another one out. Ball outside the park there. Episode 119. Not even 15, 20 minutes into the episode. And like, I'm like, I've heard a lot of this stuff before, but the intelligence scores going down after testing of, with regards to poverty. Like, I never heard that before. You may have done similar stuff and I just missed it, but I've already decided, like, I gotta listen to this thing again. I gotta determine, as you know or may remember, I work for a community health center dealing with people with low income. And, um, and I gotta figure out which part of that to share with who to, to make the best for the people here in Connecticut. So. Anyway, stay awesome. Just want to let you know that was great, fantastic. Keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. This is Rachel from Seattle. I just finished listening to your feminism and trans rights episode. Uh, and you may not be aware here in Seattle that the article that you recommended that listeners read at the end of that episode actually caused a bit of controversy here in Seattle. Um, you had thought that it was a bit balanced, and I could see why you might think that just reading it without any of the background. But um, in fact, the author consulted a fairly prominent trans rights activist here in the area and another local community leader, and then promptly ignored all of their advice. Some of the points that I'm aware of were that two of the scientists she quoted are fairly discredited, and also that the author spent some time talking about the idea that some people transition just because everybody else is or there's some kind of social contagion and that's a fairly discredited theory as well on top of which the timing of the article is pretty terrible because we're in the middle of the last minute of gathering signatures on our own anti-trans bill which thankfully they did not get enough signatures for then after the article was published there was an opportunity for the community to respond the, and the community asked for an apology and instead the author put out a pretty awful defense of why she put it out the way that she did and ignored the advice that she got. So uh, I wanted listeners to be aware of that and I appreciate everything that you do and thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. I have been forgetting to mention this. Uh, I, I said it at the beginning of the month and then have completely dropped the ball. Uh, but the podcast awards are going on right now. I would be eternally grateful if you would head over to podcast awards.com go to the nomination section and nominate best of the left in the news and politics category you only have to do it once and you'll be all set for the year again it's podcastawards.com 
follow the instructions. It's super simple. I know you can do it. Secondly, today, I appreciate the call we just got about the Seattle-based article about detransitioning that I recommended on a previous episode. And to be honest, I was aware of the controversy around the article when I recommended it. In fact, it was that controversy that inspired my commentary about how I think that there is more than one way to react to all of the terrible things that are attacking the trans community at all times. Um, basically that I, you know, I think that there is almost nothing you can do to stop people from attacking you. And the best defense is a good and overwhelmingly positive offense. And rather than dive deeper into that article or, or get into that mess, I, cause first of all, if you don't already know about it, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, you shouldn't do it just by listening to me talk about it. You should go read seven articles on it and be exhausted by the end. And secondly, if you do already know about the controversy, then you are already exhausted of hearing about it, and I won't put you through that again. So instead, I want to tell you about something else that just it sort of crossed my radar as I was looking at a couple more things. You know, I heard that voicemail. I looked up a couple more articles about detransitioning or uh, the uh, the contagion theory and all of that. And and I came across this this article that made me think I should share it with you. So let me just read this. I'm not going to tell you where it's from. Just, I don't know. It's not from Think Progress or anything like that, but like assume it's something like that. So this article is talking about uh, new studies that have come out recently. And so it says, Regarding sexual orientation, the view that it is, quote, an innate biologically fixed property of human beings, the idea that people are, quote, born that way, unquote, is not supported by scientific evidence, unquote. The article continues, indeed, the authors highlight numerous studies finding that sexual orientation is often fluid. Also, the idea that, quote, gender identity is an innate fixed property of human beings that is independent of biological sex, that a person might be, quote, a man trapped in a woman's body or, quote, a woman trapped in a man's body, unquote, is not supported by scientific evidence. Continuing, the study is lengthy and comprehensive, and when you dive into its depths, it's clear that what emerges is a messy, realistic version of human beings who are shaped by myriad social, cultural, and biological factors. So I read that, I don't know about you, and I think, yeah, there we go again. Life keeps getting more complicated every time we take a closer look at it, and that's what we've always thought. You know, decades ago, we were having this fight and, you know, on a much more simplistic level. So here's like my uh, improvised brief history of the debate between liberals and conservatives about the existence of gay people in general. So gay people uh, decide, you know, at some point to speak up and they're like, hey, um, actually, I'm gay. And conservatives were like, no, you're not. That's not a thing. And you're just choosing to be that way because you're weird. And the gay people are like, I don't think so. I I think this might be real because as far as I can tell, I've always been this way and I don't know how it happened. I didn't take any sort of gay potion to, to do this to myself. So I don't know how I got this way. But as far as I can tell, I was born this way. 
That's the best I got for you. And the conservatives are like, nope, that's not a thing. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And the gay people are just like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you because we are obviously here. We are evidently queer and you should probably just get used to it because I don't see another way around this. And then the conservatives basically just fought on that ground for the next several decades. And then eventually enough gay people came out. The conservatives finally came around. They're like, all right, I guess gay people are a thing, but I still don't like them and I don't want to have to be nice to them. So can we write some laws that says I don't have to be nice to them? So that, that's my my brief history of basically like from, I don't know, last 40 years of the uh, the discussion between the liberal LGBT community and conservatives, mostly conservative Christians, and uh, and so forth. So now's the point that I have to tell you that that article I was just reading from, that was, and like I said, it wasn't Think Progress, but I was, tra- I, I lied. It wasn't even something like Think Progress. It wasn't even vaguely uh, progressive in any way. That was the National Review, very conservative uh, online magazine. They, I think they might have a print issue too. And this whole article is constructed to prove that the LGBT community and liberals in general are wrong about the science of gender and sexual orientation. And so they present this cartoon, like, 70s version of a gay person fighting with conservatives saying, I was born this way, and they transpose that into the present and pretend that liberals still believe that it is that simple, as if liberals for the past 40 years had been chanting, sometimes it's Adam and Eve, and sometimes it's Adam and Steve, and it's just that simple, get over it. And I think the truth is a lot more complicated, as at least for me, as evidenced by, like, I, I read this, you know, what purports to be scientific research, and you heard the same thing, and you can judge for yourself that, you know, I, I hear those things, and I think, yeah, right. Like, every time I hear something new about sexual orientation or gender identity, uh, it, it usually is getting even more complicated. And yeah, it's, it's not exactly that you're born that way, but it's a complicated, well, I'll just quote from the article. It's a messy, realistic vision of human beings who are shaped by myriad social, cultural, and biological forces. Like, yeah, that's what I mean when I say that, like, gay people don't choose to be gay. That's shorthand for, uh, no, they're shaped by myriad social, cultural, and biological forces beyond their control. So just make them a wedding cake because they can't help it. Like, just, just don't be a dick. And, you know, that, that's where I'm coming from. And the National Review wrote this whole article quoting all of this scientific research and then showing it like, see, the left doesn't know anything about science. They've been pretending that they're born that way. But in reality, gender is fluid, as is sexual orientation. And I gotta say, that, that's just, that's one of those like tiny, like mind explosion moments where like I'm reading this conservative article arguing that liberals don't know what they're talking about. And I'm reading, it, I'm like, wait, I'm sorry, who do you think you're disproving? Like, this is what the LGBT community has been saying for as long as I've heard them talking about it, that 
shit's complicated and messy and gender is fluid and messy and as is sexual orientation. And that's why Facebook has 50 different gender types on there, which this article makes fun of, of course. But like, things are messy. And that's what we've been saying this whole time. And then a conservative article uses the reality of that messiness to juxtapose it with what they claim is this ridiculously simplified argument the liberals have been making to prove that the liberals are wrong. And I'm just like, no, dude, we had to simplify that because we were arguing with your dumbass. You were the one saying that it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And so the pithy response was, no, I was born this way. Get over it. And then I just have to summarize how they finish this article. Basically, they're saying that there's the liberal vision that says that uh, everyone should be able to do whatever they want to do. And, you know, that sounds nice. It's like vaguely appealing, but that ends up being disastrous. And there's the Christian, you know, Judeo-Christian version that says, no, you shouldn't do what you want to do. You should do what you should do, which to them means everyone should live in a heteronormative uh, nuclear family sort of uh, situation. And then they admit, they're like, look, like, admittedly, this is going to be easier for some people than others. Because, first of all, you have the heterosexual people, and they're pretty much going to gravitate towards heterosexual relationships. And then you got the people who aren't heterosexual and are gender fluid and, you know, sexual sexual orientation is fluid. And, like, yeah, it's going to be a lot tougher for them to just be super heteronormative and have a nuclear family. Um, But they should do it. So I just found the whole thing hilarious that we've now come full circle to the conservatives arguing that they have a better more nuanced understanding of gender and sexuality than liberals or actual members of the LGBT community do, but they still use their pseudo-understanding of what they think is uh, an appropriate reading of scientific studies to argue the exact same shit they were saying 50 years ago. So that was just a little bit of the humor I got to enjoy today at the hands of conservatives fundamentally misunderstanding the world again. I hope you enjoyed it too. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Don't forget to head over to podcastawards.com to nominate us in the news and politics category. And please keep leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our sad stories And See past our own sad stories and one